Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Good morning, church. I invite you to turn again to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, If you'd like a Bible, there are Bibles back on that cart there, and it's on page 955, 955 in the red Bible. Going to be looking at the second half of chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians As was mentioned earlier, our text is going to be verses 12 through 20. Wouldn't it be great to be part of a church that didn't have any problems? I'm sure if you haven't said that out loud, you've definitely thought it before. Maybe you've already thought it at least once this morning. Maybe you've thought it several times. Uh, this morning. Certainly, the church at Corinth, to whom Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, thought that and probably said it many times. I wish, I wish we were part of a church that didn't have any problems, so that the Apostle Paul didn't have to keep writing these letters to us and correcting us and, and refocusing our attention back on the gospel. Isn't it interesting that our God, who can take things that are meant for evil, and He means them for good, can take the problems, the very serious problems we've been looking at in the church, and he can inspire through his Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, to write some letters to this church, and then he can sovereignly make sure that those letters become part of Holy Scripture, can take the real sin and the real evil that was going on in that church and use it for our good, because now we have the written words of Scripture for our instruction that can help us with our problems in our church and can point us back to the gospel as well. It's been said of the issues that the the Corinthians were facing that they were all all a matter of of not understanding and applying the gospel rightly. And isn't that the situation with any difficulty, with any issue, with any sin in our life? It is the result of not understanding the gospel correctly and applying the gospel rightly rightly to our lives. So let's look this morning at our text, and we're going to look at another problem in the Corinthian church, but let's look at it with an eye to understanding the gospel aright and practicing the realities of the gospel in our life. As you recall, we're in this second major section of the book of 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, and in it, Paul is going through uh, addressing three very serious sin issues within the church, and we're, we're to the third one. And these are issues that were reported back to Paul, and he feels compelled to exercise his apostolic authority to write to the church and to correct them and point them back to Christ and the gospel. And this problem that we're looking at this morning is a problem of pervasive sexual sin among several of the men in the church. We looked a few weeks back at one issue that had to do with one individual in terms of of sexual sin, namely incest. But this has to do with something that's been going on apparently with more than just one person in the church, but several of the men in the church. And as I read our text this morning, I want to remind you that when you see the Apostle Paul write the words, the Lord, Understand that he means the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So when you see and when you hear the word uh, spoken and read this morning, when you see the Lord in this passage, understand that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look again at God's word, beginning at verse 12 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know? that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the member of Christ, members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Lord God, help us to understand your word to us this morning, that we might do just that. Each one of us has a physical body, and all of us are called to glorify you through it. So Lord, ground us in the gospel this morning and show us how to honor you with our bodies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we, looking at the first half of chapter 6, we, we came to this conclusion. This was the main theme of the text, that the transforming effect of the gospel ought to be seen in the lives of God's people. It isn't just something we take in mentally or, or sort of believe in our hearts, but it needs to be seen. It needs to have a reality in how we live. And, and we, as we confess this morning, God takes us sin-stained, profane, guilty people, and he washes us. He sanctifies us. He justifies us. And he makes us new. God transforms people. And that glorious gospel reality ought to be seen in transformed lives, a new way of living by the Spirit. And now here in the second half of chapter 6, the apostle applies that reality, that, that God's uh, grace ought to transform all of life, and he applies it to a very specific area of human life, namely human sexuality, and shows that the gospel has implications for our sexuality, that in our sexuality we are to glorify God, and that 
the, the gospel affects us holistically. There's, there's no aspect of our humanity that God doesn't seek to transform and change through Jesus Christ. God is in, the, is in the business of redeeming not just part of us and not just part of our bodies, but he is in the business of redeeming all of us. And in fact, it goes way beyond that because God is in the process of redeeming and restoring all of creation, all of the cosmos, all of the universe all of the physical universe. Now, this passage that we're looking at this morning begins with the specific in terms of the redemption of our sexuality. But it moves from there to something more glorious and more universal, namely the redemption of our entire being, our body and our soul. Notice in the passage the term body, the Greek word soma, appears eight times in these nine verses. And so this particular text of Scripture is one of the most important, if not the most important passage of Scripture in terms of understanding a, a biblical understanding or a biblical theology of the human body, even more than it is helpful in understanding our sexuality, which it certainly is. And so I want to begin this morning just stating the main theme of the passage and then, and then working uh, to sort of demonstrate that through three points. What I believe this word says to us this morning is that because God is fully redeeming his people, not just our souls, but our bodies, as well as the universe, then our bodies are meant to glorify God. So Paul, that's what the Spirit is saying through the Apostle Paul this morning. God is in the process of redeeming the entire cosmos. He's in the process of redeeming his people, not just saving their, their, their souls, their spiritual self, but he is redeeming us completely, soul and body. And so our bodies today, now, are meant to glorify God. And we'll look at that through this passage, making three statements that begin with, glorif- we are to glorify God because... First of all, we're to glorify God because our bodies are made for eternity. That's what we're being told in verses 12 through 14, that we're to glorify God because our bodies were made for eternity. What in the world was going on in the church of Corinth that Paul had to write on this issue? Well, it began with a misunderstanding of Christian freedom. We see that in verse 12, that there is this this sort of slogan that the Corinthians uh, would say. It's in quotation marks in the ESV. Perhaps it is uh, in other translations as well. It reads this way uh, in the English Standard Version. All things are lawful for me. Twice Paul quotes that. Quotes it again in chapter 10, verse 23. This seemed to be a sort of kind of a bumper sticker that the... Corinthians might have had, I don't know, on the back of their chariots or their camels or something. It was sort of their bumper sticker theology, I'm free in Christ. I mean, that was the passage that was read from uh, Romans chapter 8, also written by Paul, right? We are free in Christ. There is therefore no condemnation. We have been set free. And these words may have been Paul's actual words uh, to the Corinthians while he was teaching them, being thrown right back at him. All things are lawful for me. We're going to read later on in the book that uh, the Corinthians did have have a challenge with what was permittable and what was not permissible in terms of what they ate. Could they they eat anything? Could they eat uh, 
meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, listen, really, an idol is nothing. An idol is literally no thing. It's, it's not real. And so if somebody dedicates or sacrifices some meat to it, it, it really wasn't sacrificed or dedicated to anything. So if you buy that in the marketplace, uh, you may eat it and your conscience should be clear. You are free in Christ. All things are permissible. All, you, all things are lawful for you. Paul says, now, wait a second, guys. You, you have taken that to a, to a whole other place than, than I intended for you to take it. Yes, you, you are free in Christ, but that doesn't mean anything that you could do is necessarily helpful or profitable for you in following Christ. And it certainly means that, that, that no activity that takes place in your life should become your master. All things are lawful, but... You should not be mastered or, or dominated or ruled by anything. There's another little catchphrase that the Corinthians like to say in, in verse 13. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. Again, that may have been something Paul had said to them in terms of whether they could eat certain foods or not, that, that the, um, being a Christian wasn't a matter of eating and drinking, or, or what you ate or what you drink, you're free in Christ. But, but, but they, they were basically saying, here, okay, food is for the body and the body is for food. And so, therefore, the, or food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. Let's, let's take that logic to our bodies. Oh, our bodies are for sex and sex is for our bodies. If we have a physical need for food and we have a physical desire for sex... Well, doesn't, don't they both work the same way? And Paul says, no, they don't work the same way. So your stomach may be for food and food may be for your stomach, but your body, Paul says, is not meant for, notice, notice it's a purpose statement. Somebody must mean for your, for your body to be for something. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Their idea was what happens with the body, sort of like Las Vegas, what happens with the body only concerns the physical, material realm. And now my soul is, is saved. Spiritually, I'm, I'm united with Christ. And so what, this is their logic, what happens to my body doesn't really matter. It doesn't really have eternal relevance. A, a strict separation of sort of the spiritual world, good, and the material world, not good. And that was very much the way of thinking in the Greek world that the Corinthians lived. To call that kind of a very uh, separatistic sort of thinking, extreme uh, demarcation dualism. Spirit good, non-material good, soul good, physical bad, physical perishing, physical doesn't matter. So, so yeah, indulge your flesh. It doesn't matter. That's all going away. And Paul says, well, God's going to destroy food, and God's going to destroy the stomach, but God has eternal plans for our bodies as a whole. It doesn't work that way. God has eternal plans for our bodies. Well, the result of their way of thinking was that there were men in the church who were going to prostitutes and justifying that sinful behavior by saying, hey, we're simply satisfying a natural human desire like eating. And then spiritualizing their sin by saying, it's Christian freedom. Everything is permissible for me. And so the Apostle Paul must forcefully correct their bad theology here, which is now resulting in sinful living. 
what might be true about food, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, both of them being temporary, is not necessarily true of our bodies as a whole. Our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality the way that food, that your stomach is meant for food. And note here, Paul is addressing one form of sexual immorality that's going on in the church. But the term he uses here is, is very, very broad, and it includes any expression of sexuality outside of God's intended context for human sexuality, namely the marriage of a man and a woman. And Paul's going to refer to that later in the passage in verse 16 when he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and God's instituting of human marriage. Well, how do we know? How do we know, the Corinthians might ask, that the body is not meant for sexual immorality? Paul's answer is, just look at Jesus. Look at what God did for Jesus. What did God do for Jesus, the eternally existent second person of the Trinity? What did God do to the Word? John chapter 1, verse 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God gave Jesus a physical body. The, 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 the fancy theological word for that is incarnation. You hear the, the carne, flesh word in there. The second person of the Trinity, God, eternal exist, the existent, became human, took on in flesh, incarnated, encased himself. God encased him in flesh. And so if we didn't already know from creation that, that there is dignity in being a physical presence in the, in the universe, if we didn't know that there was dignity for the human body, we certainly know it through the incarnation of Jesus, that, that God made him to be flesh. We also know it from Jesus because that body that he was given suffered and died. And Paul says God raised Jesus' body. And if you recall the stories in the gospel about Jesus' raised body, it was not the same body that went into the tomb as came out. It was a new glorified body. And Paul says God is going to do the same thing for all his people. All who belong to the Lord Jesus, when he returns, will be raised. Paul writes about it to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet, the tr and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. We will be raised. All those who are in Christ, their bodies, though, though we bury them or whatever we do with the human body, after it is deceased, Jesus will bring it all back together when he returns and give all his people new, eternal bodies. But we're not going to be floating around. We're going to be flesh and blood living in a new heaven and a new earth. And so Paul's point here is, negatively, our bodies are not meant, they're not designed for selfish gratification of our physical appetites. But positively... Our bodies are meant for the Lord Jesus 
And Jesus, I love that little word for there, Jesus is for us. He's he's for our bodies. He has purposes for believers. That we're going to live with him forever in, in real physical bodies like he has sitting at the right hand of God the Father reigning on high. And so we're called to glorify God with our body because our bodies are made for, they're, they're designed for ultimately, they're for eternity. And I just want to point to two implications of that first point for us. The first of all has to do with how the Corinthians got to where they were here. It was through bad theology. It was through misunderstanding of truth and, and twisting it and taking it somewhere it wasn't intended. And so I think the first implication is that theology, which simply means what we believe about God and and what we believe about ourselves and the world in relationship to God, theology matters. Bad theology leads to ungodly living. It has daily implications. But good theology leads to godly living. Perhaps you've seen situations like this where there's a man and a woman who are living together. They're not married in a sense, they're, they're not believers and they don't really know any better. Maybe that's the way their parents raised them. That's what their friends expect of them. And then they both come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And they're transformed. And it isn't too long before she starts to realize, you know, I'm living with this guy, but I don't have the protection of marriage. And I don't have the honor of that in my life. And it isn't too long before his conscience pricks him and he he realizes, you know what? I'm living as if this woman was my wife, but she's not my wife. And I love her and I haven't honored her by making her my wife. And they begin to go down the road of of a godly, of a Christian marriage. You see, good theology leads to good results and bad theology often leads to sinful living. Second implication is that our bodies matter to God, though perhaps not in the way they matter to us. You know, we tend to think of our bodies and that of others in terms of their physical attractiveness or their their health or fitness or lack thereof or our abilities or our limitations. And certainly we live in a culture that is, is... so expressive of physical health and physical beauty to the point of making that a God. And sometimes we follow right along with that and we think of ourselves and our bodies and the way they matter in that way. But that's not the way they matter to God. God doesn't see our bodies that way. God sees our bodies, all of ours, as equally fallen, equally in need of redemption, but having great dignity through his redemptive work in Jesus. And he has eternal plans for all of us, all of his people, including our physical self, that he will raise us one day. He already did that with Jesus. Jesus is the down payment. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And so our bodies matter to God. We're called to glorify God with our bodies because our bodies are made for eternity. We're also called, secondly, to glorify God with our bodies because our bodies are members of Christ. 
They're members of Christ. We're, we're in union. We're connected to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying beginning in verse 15. You see, these verses, verses 15 through 18, Paul goes deeper into the theme of the believer's union with Christ to show that sexual intimacy outside of marriage is incompatible with spiritual intimacy with Jesus. Look at his logic beginning in verse 15, how he, how he demonstrates that. He says, now first of all, don't you know, do you not know? And remember when Paul is saying, do you not know? He's not really saying, thinking they don't know. He's sort of scolding them and reminding them, hey, I taught you guys this stuff. It may have been a few years, but you're supposed to know this stuff. Don't you remember? Don't you remember, we talked about this, that your bodies are members of Christ. He's going to develop that later in a little bit different way, talking about the body of Christ and the spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Uh, but for now, he's just saying, you, you are connected to Jesus. You're a member of Jesus. That, that in itself is, an, is a mind-blowing statement, our union with Christ, that we are all members connected to Jesus. Don't you know, don't you remember that you are members of Christ? Okay, so then shall I take a, a member of Christ and make him a member of a prostitute? And Paul answers his own question with the strongest of negatives. Never, may it never be. Some translations say, God forbid, may it never happen. Or do you not know, or do I need to remind you that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. In other words, what Paul is saying is that that sexual union is not just the joining of bodies, but is the uniting of souls. And how do we know that? Well, the end of verse 16, the Bible tells us, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, it is written... It is written, the two shall become one flesh. And the, the full uh, sentence there from Genesis 2, 24 is, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's from the story of God creating humanity, creating us male and female. And then God instituted marriage there in chapter 2 of Genesis. For the purpose, why did God create us male and female? Why did God institute marriage? It is for the purpose of more fully reflecting his image through a husband and wife than they could individually. And Paul says, reflecting Genesis chapter 2, that this is reflected in a, in a spiritual sort of way, the joining of souls through the sexual union of a husband and a wife. Again, not just the uniting of bodies, but the uniting of purpose before the couple's creator, a true, holy unity of souls. This is what makes marriage holy. Ever wonder why uh, the pastor or whoever officiates a marriage says, We're, we will now join this couple in holy matrimony? God intends for marriage to be holy, to be sanctified. And as glorious as that reality is, it's only a dim reflection of the greater reality in verse 17. But the one, the man or the woman who is joined to the Lord Jesus 
becomes one spirit with him. If, if, if when, you, when you unify sexually, you're one body. But when you unify with Jesus, you are one spirit with God through Jesus Christ. And so the unity of souls in human marriage is but a dim reflection of the joyful union and communion of each, that each believer has with his or her Savior. Which is why the Apostle Paul declares in Ephesians chapter 5 that, that our betrothal, our engagement to Jesus as, as the church, as his bride, is such a mind-blowing, such a profound mystery. And it's why he says here, in no uncertain terms, flee sexual immorality. Period, end of sentence, flee sexual immorality. Because sexual sin, he says, unlike other sins, has a unique spiritual component. It is both a sin against one's own body and it damages one's relationship, one's fellowship with Christ. And so the implication for us is the same as the implication for the Corinthians. I mean, they lived in a sexually charged world. We live in a sexually charged world. They were tempted in a variety of ways. We are tempted in a variety of ways. But the water of God's Word remains crystal clear and life-giving. And so the instruction is flee. Run. Don't play with fire. Flee from the lies that our culture tells us about sex. Hey, what happens with two consenting adults is really nobody else's business. Hey, you deserve to be happy. I mean, you don't even know for sure that you'll ever get married, so just, just enjoy. Hey, God gave you those desires. He must mean for you to follow through, right? Yeah, we, we plan to get married someday, so it's okay. Hey, using porn isn't the same thing as acting out. Hey, I need to have fun while I'm young. I can always settle down and get religious later on. Proverbs chapter 6 says regarding sexual sin, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be... Friends, sexual sin has the unique ability to tempt, to deceive, and to burn us. So God's Word is clear for all of us this morning. Flee. Flee from misery and flee toward greater intimacy with your Savior the only one who can truly satisfy you for all of eternity, the one of whom the psalmist says, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures. Pleasures. That's in the Bible. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we're to glorify God with our bodies because our bodies are members of Christ, our Savior. Finally, we're to glorify God with our bodies, because our bodies are the home of the Holy Spirit. What Paul had said earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 16, of all of us together, he now says of each individual 
believer. Each of our individual bodies is a temple to the Holy Spirit, as well as us together being built into the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, he's focusing in on the individual. Each of us is a dwelling place, a temple for God through his Holy Spirit. And how ironic this would have been to the men of Corinth who were involved in this sin. They, they were going to pagan temples to sin in this way. And Paul is saying, you don't need to go to that temple anymore. You are the temple. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are sanctified and holy because the Spirit, when you believe the Spirit, came, came to dwell inside of you. Recall those words that were read from, from uh, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Christian, your body matters to God. It's the home of his Spirit which is evidence to all that you belong to him. Paul says that here in the end of verse 19 and into 20, that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And that, that word bought, bought with a price, in verse 20, is the Greek word for marketplace. And the image here is of a slave being purchased in the marketplace and belonging to a new master. Can you imagine what that would be like? To be a slave on the auction block, waiting to be purchased, not knowing who was going to buy you, wondering, what is my new master going to be like? Is he going to be good and kind? Or is he going to be harsh and demanding? Is he going to take advantage of me? Then you see someone raise his hand and make the highest bid for you. All of you, soul and body. And you look and you see that your new master is the lamb who was slain. And by whose blood, he didn't just buy you. He didn't just purchase you. He didn't just ransom you. But he ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language, every nation, every people group. Paul says in Galatians that Christ redeemed us. He bought us back. He purchased us. He purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, which is exactly why Jesus had to have a body. So that our sin, including all the ways we sin with our bodies, could be fully atoned for with his death. He, he had to have a human body to die in the place of sinful human beings like us so that we could be fully atoned for, so that we could be free from our enslavement to sin and to Satan, and so that we could belong to a new master. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, believer, is the mark 
It is the evidence that, that Jesus has purchased you back from slavery to Satan to be his. He's brought you into union with himself. And he intends to redeem you completely. It's the mark that we fully belong to him. God does intend to fully redeem his people. He's in the process of doing that. All of us. All of our being. Not just the spiritual us, not that just the, the non-physical part that people can't see but our entire self, our bodies as well as our souls. And so our bodies today, right now, though imperfect, though broken, though out of shape, God wants to use to glorify himself and point to the greatness of his kingdom. The imperative in this passage is, is very clear. What we're called to do is very simple and very straightforward. It's right there at the end of the passage. We're called to glorify God in our bodies. All the ways that we use our bodies, all the activities that the physical you does and is involved in, we're meant to glorify God. That should be our aim. That should be our goal. Is that your aim? Is that your goal, to glorify God with your body? As you consider all the activities of your body, all the places you will go, all the things that you will do, is your goal to honor Jesus? And here, sure, that's pretty easy. What about out there? What about tomorrow morning? What about in a few moments when we leave this place? The ground for us, the reason for us to glorify God is that we belong to Christ. And the reason we so often don't honor God with our bodies is that we want to be masters of our own destiny. We want to belong to ourselves. We want to decide what's best for us and call the shots. And the result is we go back into enslavement to sin. We become like the wife of Hosea. Do you remember God's instruction to Hosea, the prophet? He was to take a wife of unfaithfulness, to marry a woman that he knew and everybody knew would be unfaithful, would, would cheat on him, would have other lovers. And he did, and she did. And it eventually landed her in slavery as the natural consequence of her sin. God comes to the prophet of Hosea and he says, I want you to do something. I want you to buy back your wife, your unfaithful wife. I want you to go into the slave market. I want you to, to purchase her freedom. Because you are going to act out, your life is going to be a drama of what I am going to one day do through my son. So, and so God says through the prophet Hosea these words in Hosea chapter 2. The Lord God says of his people, pictured in the unfaithful wife, I will betroth you. I will marry you to me forever. I will betroth you 
to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And God made that possible. God did that. He kept that covenant promise by sending his son. And so the Apostle Paul could write of our relationship with Christ in chapter 5, that Christ loved the church. Christ loved us, and he gave himself for us, that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us and washed us with the water of his word, so that he might present us to himself in splendor, without wrinkle or spot or any such thing, that we might be holy without blemish. Just like we sang, we might be as white as snow. Nothing can wash away our sin but the blood of Jesus. And the motivation for us to honor God with our bodies is that we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. I I love how the Heidelberg Catechism states that. I want to close with this this morning. It asks the question, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I'm not my own. But I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Now he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things he's working together for my full salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, makes me, makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Entirely, body and soul. And so we offer ourselves to God to honor Him, body and soul. Let me pray. God, we praise You that in the wisdom of Your good, redeeming plans for the entire universe, that You sent Jesus to pay the price for our redemption and all who look to you in repentance and faith for their redemption as well. That you sent Jesus in the flesh to pay the price for our redemption so that we could one day be fully redeemed. Lord, we know what it is, what it means to be forgiven and restored on the inside One day you will restore our outside as you gloriously raised the Lord Jesus and restored his body. Lord, in the meantime, we pray that you would give us the grace to honor you with our bodies. And Lord, we pray that you would refocus again and again our attention to the gospel that tells us that Though we were so sinful that Jesus had to come in the flesh and die for us, yet by your grace we are so loved and cherished that he gladly did come and lay down his life to purchase our redemption.
that we might live for your glory. Lord, we thank you for that, and we, pray, and we praise you for that. And we lift our voices to sing that all we have and all we are is in and through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.